Thanks for tuning in to the Harvest Springs weekly podcast. Every week we'll provide you with the weekend message from our Sunday service. Now here's this week's episode with our lead pastor, Corey Engel. Okay, if you did not grab one of these little sheets, the the note page uh, when you came in, if you didn't grab one of these, you're going to need it today. A lot of the stuff that's on this notepad that we're going to cover is not on the screens today. So, uh, so if you didn't grab one, would you just raise your hand and our usher guys will just come alongside and they'll, they'll give one to you and make sure that uh, you've got some notes because it'll be important. We are in the middle of a message series on the feasts of Israel, okay? And we've been talking about how these feasts all kind of fit together in a, in a larger piece, that they're more than just these seven individual, you know, kind of uh, separate ideas. They actually all kind of flow together. And we've been walking through all of them. There's seven, there's three in the spring, there's three in the fall, and there's one that kind of separates them in the middle. And we're going to try to go super fast today. So if you're a, if you're a first-time guest here at Harvest Springs, we're really glad you're here. I'm going to apologize because there may be a lot of stuff that I'm going to refer to, talk about that may not, that, that's kind of from previous messages that we're going to try to pull into this message today and give a little broader context to, to all the feasts together because all seven of these feasts fit together. But we've got to figure out how they fit together. And you have to kind of pull back a little bit, see the big picture. Just know that we're going to talk about these last three feasts, the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast uh, or the Day of Atonement, which is Yom Kippur, uh, which you probably are familiar with. It's kind of a, a popular name for that day. And then the Feast of Tabernacles. Those three feasts are all kind of come together in the fall. They all are to, should be understood together. And we're going we're gonna to talk about these three uh, together over the next three weeks. Okay? So before we jump in there, let's talk about this thing called eschatology. You guys familiar with that word? Raise your hand if you're like, oh yeah, I know exactly what that is, eschatology. You should, because we just put it up on the screen. It's the study of the end, okay? It literally means study of the last things. So when anybody says, you know, this is, you know, kind of my way of looking at eschatology, what they're really saying is this is my interpret uh, interpretation or my understanding of how things will transpire at the end. The disciples wanted to know this right? They came to him. Remember Matthew chapter 24 is kind of flows out of this question from the disciples. Hey, Lord, tell us how it's all going to end. How, how should we be understanding eschatology? And so when we talk about that, it just really is understanding that there are certain things that are to come, certain things that are in the future, kind of the last things, how kind of mankind and the story of redemption, how does that all wrap up well, that's the idea behind eschatology. It's we study to understand the end things, okay? There are, and again, I'm gonna, I'm gonna speak with quite a bit of generality today. I'm gonna, you know, kind of try to shoot for the 30,000 foot view. There are so many little details inside of this. We could get lost in it, but I'm gonna try to pull back and just give you some kind of a broad view of kind of what is included in this idea of eschatology. There are three main Things or three main events that things kind of revolve around in eschatology. 
The first one, and these are not necessarily in any specific order, but the first one is the rapture. Okay, the rapture. This is pretty familiar to most people inside of the church. If you've been around church for a long time, you've probably heard about the rapture. If you're new to church or new to the Bible, this might be a foreign concept to you. But the idea of the rapture, the Greek word here is harpazo, or being snatched away. Uh, I was listening to a pastor actually talk about the harpazo, or this word harpazo. He was in Greece. He was talking to uh, the, the restaurant owner, and he asked him, what does harpazo mean in modern Greek? He said, what, is, what does it mean? And the, the restaurant owner said, well, it would be like this. If your child was out playing in the street and you saw danger coming, like a car is coming, and you ran out and snatched them by the hair and ripped them back into safety, that's the idea of harpazo. And, uh, and so it's this idea of being snatched away with violence. Actually, the word carries with it this context of kind of a violent snatching. It's quick, it's, it's urgent, and there's a kind of a ripping out, okay? So there's the rapture. The idea behind the rapture, this is in your notes, is that there is a point in time when believers are caught up to the Lord. They're actually snatched away. Jesus refers to this. He said two men are walking in a field and what? One disappears. One is snatched up or taken, and the other is left behind. Right? So it's this idea that at some point, suddenly, uh, kind of without, we, we don't know when it's going to happen, but there's going to be a snatching away of believers, and they're going to be taken up to the Lord. We're going to talk more about this as we go, hopefully, if I can go as fast as I can to get through this. The second thing is the tribulation. The tribulation. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus uses the Greek word megas thelipsis. Okay? It means a great difficulty or struggle or suffering or tribulation, okay? The tribulation is a period of time of judgment, of difficulty, of hardship upon the earth. So there is this idea, we understand the Bible talks about this period of time, especially we see this really laid out in the, in the book of Revelation, that there is this kind of seven, some people say it's a seven-year period. Some people say it's kind of just periods of time. Some people it's three and a half and three and a half, and it's separated by kind of some events. Again, there's details inside of this, but ultimately there is some kind of great mega tribulation that comes upon the earth. We, we know that there are difficulties, but our assumption here is that what's described in Matthew 24, Jesus said, it's so bad that if the days were not shortened, all of mankind would be wiped out, right? We would not make it. So this is probably suffering, difficulty, judgment like we've never experienced. I know there's been difficult times in this world, and I know sometimes when Starbucks out of coffee or whatever, and we feel like tribulation has come, right, that, that we think there's difficulty, but trust me, there is a coming time when... When the word mega here, megas, is, is probably going to be an understatement. This is going to be significant, and, and it's going to change everything, this period of judgment, okay? That is to come. And then we also know then there's this thing called the millennium. Now, the word millennium is not in the scripture, but there is this thing, the thousand-year reign of Christ, 
That's clearly in the scripture. We call this the millennium, partially because that's, you know, a thousand years. And so the millennium is this idea. It's associated with actually the second coming of Christ. Christ returns to the earth. This is not the idea of believers being snatched up to the Lord. This is the Lord coming back to earth, and he establishes his divine rule, his divine king on the earth, and he rules and reigns for a thousand years, okay? We get this? So the rapture, the tribulation, and the millennium, those three things really are kind of the central pieces in eschatology. And then there's lots of different ways that these things fit together. Some people would suggest that the rapture will happen at the end of the tribulation. They're called post-trib folks, right? In their eschatology, they're post-trib. If they believe that the, the rapture would take place in the middle of the tribulation, they're called mid-trib, right? If it happens before the tribulation, they're called pre-trib. If, you know, there's pre-millennialism, there's post-millennialism, there's all there's all these, all of it is really about how all of these little pieces, these three major pieces fit together. Okay. I don't, I'm not telling you how you should fit it together. I am just suggesting you got to understand that there is these three pieces and eschatology really is about how it all fits together and, and how kind of the order flows. Now, what I'm going to suggest to you is that one way, at least some clues for us to understand this eschatology is to understand the feasts. Okay. There's some things inside of the feasts that may help us here. But I also want to urge you to have great caution about how deeply you dig your heels into your eschatology. Okay? Because here's the thing. You could get it really, really wrong. And here's how I know. Because the, the, the disciples of Jesus, they got it wrong. Now, I know you're going, what? Now, you're telling me that these, these writers of the New Testament, they got their eschatology wrong? Yes. Okay? And here's how we know. If you go to Matthew, I believe it's 20, uh, Matthew 16, 28. Is it, do you have that up there? I get it right? Yeah, there we go. Listen to what Jesus speaks to his disciples. He's there. He's with them. They're, they're, they're listening to him, and here's what Jesus says to his disciples. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, if you're one of his disciples, how do you interpret that statement? When is the kingdom going to come? Soon. And specifically, it's going to happen when? Inside of at least one of our lifetimes. At least one of us is still going to be alive when we see the Son of Man coming. Right? So their interpretation of this statement is, when is the kingdom coming? Right now. It's coming soon. We'll still be alive. So at least as long as these disciples are alive, what are the early church, what are they thinking is soon to happen? the return of Christ, the establishment of the kingdom, right? All of the our eschatological views are all going to be fulfilled inside of our lifetime because Jesus himself says we're going to see it. And so up until about 95 AD, the first church believed that 
the return of Christ was going to happen in their lifetime. It was going to happen. And now all of a sudden, the disciples are being put to death. They're dying. And pretty soon, 95 AD, there's one left. There's one left. Now, what's interesting is we know what people are thinking, partially because if you go to John chapter 21, oh, tell me my computer didn't die. Yep, it died. All right. But in John chapter 21, well, I've just, you'll have to take my word for it. This is that event when, well, maybe not. Man, we're starting over from scratch. Holy cow. Okay, never mind. So this is that period of time when Jesus appears to the disciples. He's on the shore. They could eat breakfast together. Jesus goes walking with Peter and says, right? Do you love me? Peter says, of course, I love you. You feed my sheep, right? You know this interaction? After this, right, Jesus says to Peter, you're going to live to be an old age. You're going to live to be old, and then they're going to lead you around, and ultimately you're going to basically lead to your death, but you're going to live to be old. So I think Peter is probably wondering, oh, well, maybe I'll be the guy, right? I'm going to live to be old, and so maybe I'm going to be one of the guys who sees the coming of the Son of Man, and then Peter turns, and there's John. John is over there, probably the youngest of all the disciples, maybe 15, 16, 17 years old at that time. And trust me, guys, I want you to know, some of you in this room, you're 15 or 16 or 17, you think, ah, I'm too young. God can't use me. I, I'm not, I'm, you know, not worth, you know, God's investment. Trust me, Jesus himself took a, a teenager onto the team. And this guy ultimately was used for very, very significant ministry in this world. Don't write yourself off because you're young. All right, so, so Peter looks over at this young kid and says, well, what about him? And what does Jesus say? If I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? Follow me. That's kind of Corey Engel's version, but... You can look it up. That's It's John 21, 22, that little passage. And so the early church is thinking, well, at least John, may he might stay until he comes again. right? So we'll, we'll trigger our eschatology based on John. Well, then what happens? In 95 AD, John is, well, he's arrested. He's tried to, the Domitian actually tries to kill him the Caesar at the time, boils him in oil. John doesn't die. So basically, everybody's like, yeah, see, John can't die because the Son of Man hasn't come. It, you know, the, the, everything hasn't concluded yet. And so then next thing we know, John is banished to the island of Patmos. And a couple little years later, he's stuck in a cave where all of a sudden, what does he see? It's recorded in the book of Revelation. If you want to read it, guess what? It is the son of man and his kingdom coming, right? All of a sudden, that is a wrench in the early church's eschatology because they had made assumptions about what Jesus had said and they had interpreted it in their kind of context, the way they understood it. And all of a sudden, now they realized, Right? Well, Jesus knew what he was saying. He was actually true. John didn't die until he sees the coming of the Son of Man. But he, then he writes that vision. He shares it with the church. And now the early church is having to rework their eschatology. So what I'm saying is, 
If you think you've got it all figured out and you've got it all laid out and you're definite and sure, just know so are the disciples and they got it wrong. So you could get it wrong too. So what I would suggest to you is that we, we hold our eschatology like this. I believe that God wants us to know, not necessarily the day or the hour, but he wants us to know about the end things. If he didn't want us to know, he wouldn't have said anything about it. But he did say lots and lots about it. It's in the Old Testament. The prophets talk about it. It's in the New Testament, right? The disciples talk about it. Jesus talks about it. And so clearly, as believers, we should be focused not entirely on eschatology, but we should be aware of it, we should be studying it, and we should be knowing the times we're living in. And I will be, I will be very clear with you. I believe that we are, we're living in the end days. I, I'm not saying none of this stuff is, is fulfilled just yet. But I would suggest we're right around the corner. There's my Bible software, just so you know. It's, it's popping back up. So we're right around the corner. How many of you guys went to Sunday school when you were a young kid, right, way back in the day? I remember when Sunday school, this was before they had projectors and overheads, right, and, you know, this little slide stuff. We didn't have screens. So when, when you, we'd get together in our churches, the Sunday school teachers would get out these little, like, they were like these song books, but they were great big ones with words. And there was this one that I always remembered. In fact, anytime the, the teachers would go, hey, what songs do you guys want to sing? This one, all the kids clamored for. It was the countdown song. Anybody know this one? Stacey, you want to sing it for us? You want to come up here and sing? We remember this from our kids. It was a giant rocket ship. Little, and they'd throw open the pages. Here were the words. Somewhere in outer space, God has prepared a place for those who trust him and obey. Are you guys with me? Do you guys know this song? Raleigh, I know you know this one. Okay? Am I the only one? You guys remember this? Raise your hand if you know this one. Okay, Andrew, you're, we're old, I guess. We're old. It says, Jesus will come again, and though we don't know when, the, oh, my wife knows this. Yes! We're not old. The countdown's getting lower every day. 10 and 9, 8 and 7, 6 and 5 and 4, call upon the Savior while you may. 3 and 2, coming through the clouds in bright array, the countdown's getting lower every day. I'm going to have the worship team work this up for next week. <laughs> the idea here is that even as kids, <laughs> right, we were being taught that, that Jesus could come at any time. And there's this understanding of being prepared and being ready. God wants us to be ready for the end times. Otherwise, he wouldn't have given us an insight into what is to come. And so this eschatology, it's not something to get crazy about, because there are a lot of people that get crazy about this. Right? There are a lot of people that that's like all they can read, that's all they can study. They can't study anything else but just the end time stuff. You probably met some of those folk, these folks. I'm not saying that we should get out of whack here, but we definitely as believers are called to be aware of what is to come and to be ready, to be ready. Part of what I believe would point or help us get ready in this is an understanding of the feasts, okay? Because when you look at all seven of these feasts and how they lay out together, I think you will see that these last three feasts are yet to be fulfilled. 
Okay, in your notes, the fall feasts, right? In the in the seven feasts, there are three feasts that happen in the spring. They're all yoked and connected together. This is what we've been talking about. They, they start with Passover meal. The next day is the feast of unleavened bread, and inside of the feast of unleavened bread, then is the feast of first fruits. Those three feasts all are connected to the Exodus, and they're all connected to the deliverance of Israel the Israelites out of Egypt, the establishment of the nation, they're all connected to that birth of Israel. And they ultimately are all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And if you don't understand this, just go back and listen to the first three messages here, because the Passover meal is all about the lamb that was slain, right? And the blood covers the doorposts. And ultimately, then the judgment of God passes over us. Right? It's Jesus being put to death. The, the feast of unleavened bread, right? That lifeless body of Jesus wrapped up, put in a tomb, just like the, the sinless, the, the unleavened bread is what they ultimately would sustain themselves on. Then leading to what? The, the raising up of the first fruits of their heart, uh, of their barley, right? Symbolizing the raising up of Jesus Christ. Those three feasts are all fulfilled in Jesus. Okay? Then there's a gap. There's a countdown to what's called Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks. This middle summer feast stands on its own to a certain extent. It is connected to the previous three, but again, it kind of is separated by this period of seven weeks. That feast is focused on the gift of God to the nation of the Torah, the law. Okay, so the two, the two uh, loaves of bread representing the two tablets, the two, uh, you know, the law given to God as a gift to guide and, and, uh, and lead the people. Well, ultimately, we also know that that is fulfilled on Pentecost to the church, the gift of the Spirit, Acts 2.38, right? Receive the Holy Spirit. It's the gift of the Holy Spirit. So we know that just as as Pentecost, right, not only connects the giving of the law, we also know we have the giving of the Spirit. It's fulfilled in the Spirit. But the fall feasts do not have yet a fulfillment. In fact, all of these three feasts are prophetic in nature, meaning that they are pointing towards things to yet be fulfilled. They are not remembering things that have been fulfilled. They're ultimately pointing towards things that will be fulfilled. All right? So these fall feasts are yet to be accomplished or connected yet to God's ultimate purposes and plans. All right? So we need to understand that. And to tie this in, we know then that Isaiah chapter 46, this is God, he's speaking in verse 8, and he says, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors, you sinners. <laughs> remember this, you sinners. That's all of us, by the way, just so you know, we're all in that boat. This is for us. He says, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. Well, okay, so there's none like God, God is about to say why there's no one like him, what he can do that no one else can do. And here's what he says. I declare the end from the beginning and from ancient times, right? From way back before things that haven't yet been fulfilled. I declare all of that saying my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purposes. When God says, I declare the end from the beginning, 
What he's saying is, and I'm taking him at his word, that he has revealed the end at the beginning. I want you to think about that for a moment. That God has revealed the future things yet to come. He has given us hints about that from the beginning. And when you talk about the beginning for it, to the Jewish folks, they go, oh, the beginning of the nation, the beginning of the law, the beginning of all this stuff. And what do we know? We know that these feasts were laid out to the people of Israel at the beginning, at the beginning of their, their becoming a nation. Okay? So just something to think about. Something to think about. These feasts may be helping us understand not only the beginning, but also the end. Let's take a look at these three fall feasts. It starts with the Feast of Trumpets. The Feast of Trumpets. It starts on Tishri the first. Now, this is the Jewish month, Tishri the first. For them, it is considered the head of the year, or Rosh Hashanah, right? You guys know this, this is their new year, the Jewish new year, Rosh Hashanah. This is Tishri the first. For them, this is the beginning of their civic year. They actually have kind of, in their understanding, they have a religious new year, which is Nisan the first, the spring, right? We talked about this. This is what triggers the countdown to the Passover and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread, all that. That's the religious new year. That's when the nation was born. But Tishri the first, for them, they understand this to be the day man was created. They consider this basically the new year, new year for mankind, all right? Just some, I'm giving you a lot of stuff a lot of pieces of the puzzle. We're flipping them over so you can see them. It's up to you to kind of put all these pieces together, all right? So the Jews view this very first day of the fall feasts, the Feast of Trumpets, as being the new year. It's the beginning of something. And it triggers, this feast triggers a 10-day period of repentance, confession, restitution, making things right because it's leading up to a very special day called the Day of Atonement. This is the second feast day in the fall feasts. So the Feast of Trumpets, 10-day period of repentance, confession, and, and uh, restitution leads to the Day of Atonement. We know that the Day of Atonement is where, and this might be a very familiar feast for most Christians, it is where two goats are brought to the, the priest there is a lot cast for them. One is chosen. It is killed and sacrificed. The blood is, is used to cleanse the temple. The second goat is not killed. The priest lays his hands on the head of the goat. He imparts the sin of the people onto that goat, and they send that goat into the wilderness. We talked about this uh, maybe six or seven weeks ago when we talked about Azazel, right? The wilderness demon. So that's what happened on the Day of Atonement. We'll talk more about that next week. But ultimately, the Day of Atonement was a day when the Israelites believed that God would write the name of people in the book of life or in the book of death. All right, I want you to think about this. We can get to this in the first service, but 
on the day of atonement, your name was either written in the book of life or is written in the book of death. Well, sometimes. So their idea was that most of the time, you know, people weren't good enough to get in the book of life and they weren't bad enough to get in the book of death. Most people, you just didn't know where you were. You know, some people, they were like, you know, Hitler, he's in the book of death, right? He was really, really bad. But most people aren't Hitler, so we're, we're kind of in the middle there. And we don't know exactly where we live inside of that. Are we good enough? So maybe we've been really, really good, and we're right on the edge of goodness. And if we get just a few more good works in on the Day of Atonement, God might write my name in the book of life. So I'm going to be as good and, and, and humble and repentant. I'm going to make amends. I'm going to, I'm going to go make sure I'm good so that I, maybe I could get in the book of life. In fact, on the day of the trumpets, on the Feast of Trumpets, people would begin to greet one another with this greeting, may your name be written in the book of life. And then they say, same to you. Because the idea was, hey, you know what's coming up? Is this day where God ultimately is going to make a judgment over our life. And we're going to have to, we're going to have to either be written in the book of life, or maybe if we don't take this seriously, we could potentially get written in the book of death. Okay. The day of atonement was a big day for the people of Israel. Five days after the day of atonement, then would come the feast of tabernacles. In the feast of tabernacles, all males were required to go to Jerusalem. It was a pilgrimage feast. Just like the Feast of First Fruits, just like the uh, or the Passover, just like the Pentecost, you'd have to travel to Jerusalem. When you got there, you would build yourself a little tiny hut, a tabernacle, okay? And this tabernacle would be your home for the next seven days. And this feast was all about remembering or or projecting or prophesying about a day when we will be once again united together with God, living in his presence. Are you putting some stuff together here? This Feast of Tabernacles is all about, there's going to be a room for us in God's presence, and we're going to live in that place, and we're going to stay there. Seven days is kind of this idea of completion or perfection. Right? It's, it's forever. This feast is connected with this idea of living in God's home. And where do we get this idea from? From the very beginning, God created man. Where did he create man? He created him in Eden. And what do we know about Eden? Okay, again, this is a couple of months ago when we talked about Eden uh, is God's temple. It's God's home. It's God's mountain. All of this stuff is connected to living together with God. The Feast of Tabernacles was this future view that someday we are all going to be united and we're going to live once again in God's home the way God originally intended for us to live when he created us in Eden. All right? So there are your three fall feasts. Are you starting to get a piece here? And we didn't, oh my word, we're so, so late. I hate that time, right? We've got to roll... How did they do that? Can they stop the time? The sun stood still or somehow, and they got extra time. Got to figure that out. All right. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to throw this at you really quick. But again, we talked about this last week. What I'd like you to do is try to put some pieces together. Right? You've got these three fall feasts. You've got these three big chunks, right? Spring, Pentecost, and uh, and fall feast, right? Two have been fulfilled. 
One hasn't. These three feasts are all waiting for fulfillment. We're all waiting to kind of see how God is ultimately going to fulfill these feasts. We look at them and we go, there are these three main components of eschatology. How do all these things fit together? I think we get a clue when it comes to the Jewish wedding tradition. We're going to reconnect here. There are three main parts to the Jewish wedding traditions. Okay, Are you getting this idea that three is kind of a big deal for God? The first part of the wedding tradition is called the betrothal or the uh, shadukin. Okay. It was at the shadukin where a price was paid for the bride by the groom's father. The groom would give a gift to the bride. A covenant was read and then entered into together. And that would basically, they're, they're now committed to one another. They're engaged Okay, and that would lead them to the engagement. The engagement was called the irisin. Okay, during the engagement, the groom would return to the father's house and he would prepare a place for his bride called the bridal chamber. This was for her and him as they would ultimately build a family together. Okay, the irisin was a period of watching and waiting by the bride for the day of the groom's return. All right. What I would suggest to you is that the first two have been fulfilled already in Jesus. And we are now in the Erisun period where we're watching and we're waiting, right? We are fulfilled. We're in that place. The third piece is yet to be fulfilled. Listen to this. The wedding, the Neosin, at the father's direction, the groom would then go and snatch away the bride. He would uh, grab her party and take her to the father's house for the wedding. On the way there, they would blow a shofar. This is it. This is what when they say trumpets, they had different trumpets in Jude. They had some gold and silver ones, but most of the time, if they were uh, declaring a trumpet, this was it. This is the this is a shofar from Israel. Okay, and uh, I know you guys are going. Can you blow it? Just one time. I'm I'm not good at. It. I'll give you a shot. That's all I got. Okay, when I was in Israel, when I was in Israel, uh, at every every gift shop when I was in Israel, they have these things. They're they're you know in every shop, and in every shop, one of the guys on my team on our little uh, tour went to every in every single shop we were in. He grabbed the shofar and tried to blow it. It sounded just like that. Finally, our tour guide got so frustrated. He went over and he snatched the shofar out of him, and he's like. And everybody just stopped. Like we, we understood like the Israelites know how to do this, but we Americans do not. Okay. So this was something they would blow and they blow this a hundred times on the day of trumpets. What would happen is that when the, when the people of Israel are, are, uh, are, well, when the bride is waiting, the groom is coming to get the bride. There would be shouting and there would be the blast of trumpets. And guess what they would often shout? The bridegroom comes. Come you on out to beat him. Okay? So there was this call for the bride to get ready with her wedding uh, party and to come and meet the groom. It's the harpazo, okay? The snatching away. Ultimately, what would then happen? That the, the, the groom would take the bride back to his father's house. There, they would... Uh, uh, declare their covenant together. 
They would share a cup of wine together to seal this covenant. And then they would enter into the feast, a wedding feast of celebration, where ultimately they would uh, be celebrating their union together. And sometimes during that feast period, they would go into the bridal chamber and consummate the marriage. Okay? Now again, all of this stuff, we got to be thinking, God has declared the beginning from the end. These are things that ultimately, as we start to understand, these are things that Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, that when that where I go, you may come with me, and I'm going to come and receive you unto myself. I'm going to come, right? We've got this idea from the Jewish wedding traditions that Jesus is saying, I'm coming. Now, lastly, and then we got to go, the trumpets and the rapture. I'm not saying that the Feast of Trumpets represents the rapture. I sure think so. But you can make your own determination. Listen to what it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 51, and 52. I'm going to give you the two main passages about the harpazo, the rapture, the snatching away. And they both include trumpets. It says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. There's this idea of the dead being raised and also a transformation of those who are still living. That's 1 Peter 15, 51 and 52. It's connected to the trump, the trumpet. All right. First Thessalonians 4, 15 through 17. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry or a shout. Why would that be significant? In your notes right below there, the Feast of Trumpets, it says that the festival of trumpets is actually called Yom Teruah. The word Teruah means a loud shout or a trumpet blast. What you'll notice here in 1 Thessalonians 4 is that when God comes, there's both a loud shout and a trumpet blast. I'm guessing that God's doing that just so that if you thought it was just a shout, he'd get you. And if you thought it was just a trumpet blast, he'd get you there too. He's just covering all of his bases. I'm not sure. But we see here that there's both a large shout and with the trumpet of God. And what happens at that trumpet? It says that the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So what I want to challenge you with is this. I want you to think about what it means to be ready and waiting and watching for his return. In Matthew chapter 24, right, Jesus is giving a, kind of an outline of what is going to happen in the end. And then he tells a little parable, a story of 10 virgins and a bride who are supposed to be waiting for the coming of the bridegroom. And then he finds that there are five that are ready, that they have prepared themselves. It's lasted way longer than they thought, but they were ready. They trimmed their lamps, they gathered oil, right? Because they didn't know when it was going to happen, but they got themselves ready and prepared. But there were five other members of the party that weren't ready. 
They didn't get their oil ready. It doesn't say that they're not a part of the party. It actually says they just weren't ready to go meet the groom. I want you to think about that for a moment. I think it is very possible. I'm not saying that's how it is. I'm just saying it's very possible that not all Christians will be snatched away. But only those who are ready and watching and eager for his return. Only those who've prepared themselves. The rest, I'm not saying you're not saved, but you might have to endure some difficulty and some hardship, maybe. Because just as, right, if we think this through, just as we can't have the Feast of First Fruits before Passover, we can't have Pentecost before Feast of Unleavened Bread. Like there's an order to this. I would suggest that possibly at the end here, there's an order. And it could be that if the Feast of Trumpets is connected to this idea of a rapture and the Feast of, or the Day of Atonement is connected to this idea of judgment and difficulty, and this Feast of Tabernacles is connected to this idea of the marriage and the wedding of the feast and now being one in his house together, that maybe we need to understand that that rapture could be happening at any moment. And I hope in Jesus' name that you are ready. I hope. Because I believe it could happen at any moment. In fact, I told one of our staff guys, there's no guarantee we're getting to the 1130 service. No guarantee. So let me challenge you. Will you be ready? Let me pray for us. And then, again, we got to skedaddle you out. We, we got to go. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We pray and ask, Lord, that you just, that you would prepare our hearts and that we would be the bridegroom ready for your coming. God, may we purify our hearts. May this, may this message even just be a, a challenge for us to move into a period of repentance and making things right and confession and, and restitution, beginning to live the way we claim to be. And I pray, Lord, that you would, you would prepare your church, your bride, for your return. And we ask and pray, Lord, that you would do all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, we got to go. Another service is coming. So uh, God bless you. Go with God, and we'll, we'll dive into more of this next week. See you next week. Thanks so much for listening to the Harvest Springs podcast. Our hope is that you hear the truth of God's word and that you are encouraged and challenged by it. If you would like to take your faith journey to the next level, check out the Getting Started plan on our mobile app or our website, harvestsprings.com. The Getting Started plan is a seven-day video-based teaching that will help you start your relationship with Jesus off in the right direction. And if there's anything that we can do to help, just fill out a connection card on our website or on the mobile app.